0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping into our Omega studio today, Jeff Warren. Jeff is a meditation teacher, journalist, and author of The Head Trip, A Travel Guide to Sleeping, Dreaming, and Waking. He's also co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which he says marked the start of speaking openly in public about his own mental health challenges. Jeff's honest, down-to-earth, and sometimes irreverent exploration of meditation has made him one of the most accessible experts in the field, with popular content on apps like Calm and 10% Happier, Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for dropping in today on Omega's Rhinebeck New York campus. I'm so happy to see you. I'm
1: happy to meet you, Callie. Thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Thank you for making the time. What is your practice? Here you are. We're at the Omega campus. Mm -hmm. What's your practice when you're here at Omega campus? And did you have one this morning?
1: Uh, So, I did not do my formal sitting practice this morning. Actually, I often don't do a formal sitting practice. Uh, I probably get I'm honest. Maybe two of those in a week. It depends on the week. Uh, some oh, weeks quite a bit. But in terms of you know, half an hour set aside deliberately to get very quiet and seated. That said, I, I kind of continuously think about practice and connect to practice like instructions throughout the day. Um, I mean, that's kind of the my whole point for me is mm-hmm. that is to liberate practice and meditation from the from the cushion you know to kind of bring it out in every in different ways so i do lots of other practices through the day i'll do um, movement practices where i'm really cultivating the same skills i'll do um, you know, once a week I meet with a trauma therapist, which is really important for me. And it's the same skills that are being cultivated there. I have a voice coach I work with, which has been a tremendous adventure into my mind and body that turns out to be the same skills and all kinds of insights get generated from there and, and on and on and on. So I, I mix a lot of practices into my day. I do think there's a place for a simple seated practice and stillness there's something that happens there that is very important which we can unpack um but there's a lot of mixing up and my new thing is feldenkrist i'm doing this training to uh to be a Christ teacher and which is all about move uh, kind of movement meditation getting very 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 um still inside and noticing the sort of uh freedom available i guess you could say in each moment to move in a slightly different way, to, to slightly repattern the nervous system. And I'm finding it just this incredible experience, these trainings. So I'm doing quite a bit of that right now too. So that's an answer to your question. yeah. yeah.
0: Do you, um, going back to the voice coach, is that intended for your professional life or to get more in touch with your voice in sort of a metaphoric and literal way? Well,
1: all the above. Uh, it started out as something that calm, uh, proposed I was I do a lot of meditations for the apps now for 10% happier and for calm and I was getting my voice was getting kind of burned out after two and a half hours I was getting all vocal fry they call it like this when you're talking like this
0: when you're doing as as it happens when you do meditation it's sort of funny yeah
1: (laughs) yeah yeah. Uh, which I yeah ironic I'm guiding meditations and I'm getting but of course, guiding meditations, that's a whole subject, how to guide meditations in studio. its I, I love it. But anyway, I was getting um, – my voice was getting sort of strained, and they suggested, hey, why don't you see this voice coach that can give you some tips? And So I met this wonderful woman, Deborah Joy, who's based in Toronto where I am, and she's also a Kundalini teacher. She's so many things. And in this exploration of my voice – I have, I mean, I can't even tell you the amount of insights and learning I've had. For one, I don't actually even, I often don't speak in my normal range. I speak deliberately a little lower Mm -hmm. without knowing I'm doing that because something about how I was brought up, you know, having too high or light a voice, something was weak about that, but Mm -hmm. who knows what it was. So I've internalized this way of relating to the, and, and when I'm in that lower voice, I tend to be in a more explanatory uh, mode as opposed to a a more second circle genuine connecting vibe. So she showed me this, you know, and it's become this whole and then uh, discovering and rediscovering my love of singing. Uh, so she now we we sing together and make sounds together and we explore the range and it's just become this whole exploratory practice into. Who I am, my whole being. And that's kind of my thing is that anything can be that. Mm -hmm. There isn't, you know, interviewing people, being looking at you across the table, you doing what you do is an entire deep practice of exploring who you are. And the way you approach that, it reveals different dimensions. It, It can itself be a transformative practice. So, um, So, I mean, this ended up being a good way into talking about things I'm passionate about.
0: Yeah, Yeah, no, that's really beautiful and interesting, Hmm. Um, right? So, already begs, like, so many questions, um, just offshoots out of everything that you just said. Um, But describing sort of the pastiche of all the different things that you find mindfulness inside of. I love the idea and I do I know that you represent this um, and also you speak you really are such a master at contemporizing and mainstreaming for lack of a better word and making more accessible the concept of meditation. Mm-hmm. And these are all versions of mindfulness that most of us aren't thinking about every day mm-hmm. that you can really find it in everything.
1: Yeah, I mean the the liberating I mean, I've always I'd always understood the idea of kind of mindfulness in action, and of course, understood the idea that there are many wayfinders and paths in. But my teacher for a long time was Shinzen Young, still right. someone who's very important to me, and he has a particular way of talking about mindfulness, which has been very revealing for me. And that is just really seeing it as this. He describes for him as a it's a sort of a three part skill attentional skill set. That it's a cultivation of concentration, of clarity, and of equanimity, mm-hmm. and understanding those component parts, understanding how they show up in our moment-to-moment experience, what they are, how they deepen over time. That, to me, was sort of the uh, that was the skeleton key, because then I could see how those qual. I can see how those qualities show up in different ratio in different practices. You can see how they live in prayer practices, how they live in movement practices, or how they live in artistic practices. Right. And, and you can, I mean, and each of those three, and there's not just the three, of course, there's lots of ways to break this down or other skills, but you can see the, how the medicine of each of those three works. And I think of it often as like, um, I mean, that's one of the things I'll I, I I do in my teachings when I teach in larger groups is, I kind of start by putting up on the board in front of me. I get a bunch of paint and I paint like uh, four colors. You know, red is for care. That's the the care piece, and yellow is for clarity, and green is for equanimity, and blue is for concentration. And this is our color palette. You know, this is these are the basic building blocks out of which every practice is built. Among other things, they're there in different ratios and. We can begin to kind of paint our own experience. We mm. can begin to shape our own experience with that as our palette. And and then that becomes when you really understand that as you're going about your day to day, it's less am I meditating? It's more for me, it's more, OK, oh, I can see right now, for example, I'm getting really excited I'm, there'd be a tendency in me to just keep rambling, rambling on and just hurl unheeding over whatever sensitive, interesting questions you're about to launch into. But instead I have the skill of equanimity. So it's like, okay, I can kind of know, I can kind of back off from that energy that wants to surge forward. I can make this little adjustment. You know, I can choose to tune in. I can choose to tune into your face, that little concentration adjustment and see what I'm noticing there. I could get kind of clear on the details. I can let it show me something. I can start to infuse the moment with more care. I mean, these become the levels, the mixing board and whatever your metaphor, there's infinite metaphors for uh, kind of managing your experience moment to moment and going more deeply into ultimately into your experience of your life.
0: Is there <laughs> is there such a thing as hyper-mindfulness in the moment?
1: Yeah, You know, like just because I
0: hear all the nuances of what you're describing when you're practiced yeah. and when you're um, a practitioner and an expert, for lack of a better word, in the idea of mindfulness and meditation, and you're always able to notice and catch yourself and find that space, is there such a thing as hyper-mindfulness?
1: Like it going too far?
0: Yeah, or where it yeah. can be interruptive.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't think know. No, no, it's a really interesting. I, there's actually a bunch of things that come out of that thinking about that. Um, what I would, uh, I mean, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is there is certainly a period in, in living the examined life in becoming more mindful where it actually creates a sort of heightened self-consciousness where the, you know, it's almost like you, cause you have a, quote, meditator or a mindful person watching you all the time, you know. And so it can – so that's a sort of – that's a kind of halfway house where there's <laughs> a period of needing to kind of see that. Right. And of being – seeing the overvigilance, if you will. And and I think that's kind of part of growth in, in, a, in a mindfulness understanding. Um, and I would also say there are particular – each of those skills can be really dialed up to degrees that are quite um, – interesting and I don't think fully necessary for example the mindfulness piece the 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 hyper clarity the sensory clarity like my teacher Shinzen and the the Vipassana world that path to liberation or to more freedom or whatever you want to call it is a path of ratcheting up the sensory clarity you know it's about seeing in moment to moment the fundamental emptiness seeing the rising and falling of things and then seeing Mm -hmm. what's empty underneath it and Mm -hmm. that is very profound. It's it's also kind of a boutique thing. It's not necessary for everyone. It's just it's <laughs> it's one kind of temperament that's going to be drawn into that, and it's one form way in which we can start to see something more fun, fundamental in life. But it also can be a little bit dis maybe not maybe more than a little bit dysregulating. I found it to be dysregulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went. I was a super hardcore practitioner. I was gunning for all the classic attainments in a very in a vipassana mode, and mm-hmm. all the models, teacher models I had around me were kind of these uh, very masculine, analytic, sort of uh, vaguely autistic temperaments. <laughs> so that was what I thought practice was, and it it ended up being fairly dysregulating for me. So I, I had to kind of change how I approached it. And I mean, I have a lot of dysregulated energies. I have a bipolar diagnosis, an ADD diagnosis. I'm kind of like a volatile nervous system. So you have to learn to make adjustments in your practice based on what you're bringing to the table and what's coming up, as you obviously know, (laughs) (laughs) because you interview people way smarter than me about this. Oh,
0: no, I'm here to hear it from you right now. So I appreciate everything that you're saying. And speaking about the What you said earlier about all the different ways that we can find mindfulness and meditative moments in a certain type of practice in ways that we're typically not thinking about and how that's so much of what your work is about, do you think that that helps to appeal to a a different demographic and contingent of meditators to take away sort of the austerity and the mysticism and the, you know, all the kind of ancient wisdom words that are often associated with meditation? Yes. And how important is
1: that? I i think it's really important for this time and i think i think having a fun approach having a deliberately pluralistic approach and i'll be honest i'll say the words this is an add generation this is an add time attention has never been pulled in so many directions it's never been more challenged i myself have that diagnosis it's something it's a challenge i work with i recognize the path i've just described is fundamentally an add outlook on practice there are downsides to that or there are things that you need to be mindful of about that and there are advantages to that. And so knowing what those are is important. The, the downside, the obvious downside is you end up in a kind of endless consumer mentality of just shopping for practices and never committing to anything. Um, and that is definitely something that can happen. I think you know, the for for me the way around that is first of all understanding, like I just articulated, that there are common skills that we're always training in a way. Right. You know, those skills themselves become your vertical path in, even if you have fairly widespread. Um, uh, another thing is just. Um, you, you know, some people aren't temperamentally – some people f- hear, they find out about a path, they find out about a teacher, they find out about a technique, and it just – it's so obviously the right match for them. Mm-hmm. And then it's so – so that pluralistic mode is a way for them to find that. You know, otherwise, they they are they have some thing in their head about how practice needs to look. It's whatever it is that they've encountered. It has to be this austere – like you were describing, this austere – things sitting on a cushion and only working with the breath or only working in this modality and it doesn't speak to them right
0: mountaintops and
1: ashrams all and of all those and
0: beautiful things but not what's it's not necessary yeah. to learn and to take on and these practices health, mm-hmm. uh, the mental
1: health situation today is way too urgent for that people need practices practices you know creative practice is preventative mental health And if you so, we have to help people find their way into what works for them based on who they are and what's around them. And so, I think having a kind of playful, pluralistic presentation of practice up up top is is how it's going to appeal to that generation, and and not just that generation. Lots of people. I mean, my generation, you know, Gen Xers.
0: (laughs) So So important. So important. You'd said something. I'm not sure. Let's see if I read it or if I heard it. There was a reference that I found in researching you that you believe that meditation may be one of the most radical things we humans can do, take Mm -hmm. on. And I wonder why you believe that. Mm. And if you think that the world would be a kinder, gentler, more secure place if more, if not everybody in our fantasy minds meditated.
1: I absolutely believe that. Although I would say... By meditation, I mean really practice. I mean having that, that, being committed to some kind of practice and to be to living a more conscious life in that way and trying to apply the skills that you're learning. I mean, it's the most radical act because it is remixing your experience of reality, of self and world. What is more radical than that? I mean, practice shows you the fundamental um, plasticity of our models of self and world, and how we can begin to—we don't have to just, you know, take everything. We don't have to just whatever challenges we're presented with. We don't have to like let ourselves stay in that place. Right. We can get traction on it. We we can, you know, we begin to we can change. We can transform. We can heal, and we can use our own suffering and our own exploration that way to help others do the same thing. And so – and that it's just – it's the most radical reconfiguring of a life. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. – uh, it's incredibly empowering. And it's fundamentally creative. I mean, that's the um, – you know, you can make – you can transform your life according to what matters to you. Right. According to your values, you can – and this isn't just – I don't mean this in some kind of rhetorical way. I mean, you can, really can change – how you're experiencing things. It's how I've changed how I've experienced things. If I look at how I am now, you know, I just, there's so much less suffering in my experience now than there was. And there's, I have such a different view or understanding of things. And, um, you know, I just think I would want that for everyone. Um, And so the question is how to get folks into that mindset, you know, away from the kind of bad old way of thinking about it, which is, bad and put that in quotes, but it's like, oh, you kind of get to be, you you know, mental health is not something you need to think about. You're kind of born and you coast unless there's a real emergency and then you got to go to a professional and ask for help, which is a really different way to think about it than I think a healthier way to think about it is, you know, this is this basic creative project that it's something we have to always be conscious of. And there, and practice is the is a very thing that will support us in that. And when you
0: say creative, it sounds really we're we're talking about the the creation of our lives, exactly. as sort of this piece of clay that we're perpetually
1: sculpting. The, the creation of our lives and the spread of love and caring out to every other life, because I think the the most important thing that you communicate as a guide it it may be in part for sure this idea of getting still beginning to trust yourself but for me as important as that is this idea that your life is yours to find your creative practice you know that you i teach these how to guide workshops and i it's about ostensibly how to guide people in meditation how to guide people in practice but really what it is is how to show in the guiding how this practice that you've chosen is perfectly suited to you and the healing you need. And you can do that too. So let me take you into my healing. I'll share this thing with you and then make something for yourself and share that with somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's that it's sending it out. It's casting out the seeds. Um, and thinking of it as these creative projects that we can pass around and to pass around each other's and, and put into each other's, put each other's nervous systems inside <laughs> is like, oh, it just gives me chills.
0: Yeah. Especially given the intention of what you're, what you're expressing, which is just to create more of a sense of community and tribe and humanity and collectivity and all the things that are really our, our deepest, most primal desire anyway that we just continue mm. to forget we exactly. get so far away from it exactly and i think um what you're expressing is such a beautiful reminder of like these practices and modalities are all so simple or at least the intention is so simple mm-hmm. we've done such a good job of complicating complicating and mm-hmm. moving away from what our true essence is that's totally. a topic that forever astounds and confounds me yeah how well, we've gotten so good well at that said. um Let's talk about what meditation and practice really do. Mm-hmm. Physiologically, bare bones for someone who's never considered it, thinking about it, afraid of it, curious, intimidated. Yeah. Bare bones, like what, what does it do?
1: Well, I mean, I, I wrote a book about the brain and was, I've been interested in w- what changes in the brain. But I think actually a much more direct way to talk about it is to talk about experience. What it does in experience is um, um, it helps you get out of your own way. You know, it you make things deliberately simple and it takes a while. It can take a while for things to settle. But as the, you know, the thinking mind, the, the mind that's always making problems, the mind that's in the future and in the past and which is this beautiful thing that we dance with in our life, but as that begins to quiet, we see there are fewer problems. <laughs> and it really is that simple in a way. It's, it's the experience is of a kind of settling, a kind of coming back into our bodies, back into the moment, realizing that there's actually more space in this moment than we realize. There's more, and therefore we have more autonomy to make the choices, the responses that are most That make most sense for the situation and then you know in the body it's there are all these ways that the practice down regulates all the fight subtle fight flight in the nervous system you know you're continually amazed at how much there's always more of you that can rest you sit down on a cushion and you think you're relaxed on the mm-hmm. cushion, but actually you're really uptight. It's like you got to pickle up your butt. You're kinda of holding <laughs> yourself off the cushion. You don't even realize it. It's like, oh and then you see this layer or you see this layer of tension in your face, the sternness. And and they just the layers come off. You know, it's layer by layer and ever more light, ever more available, ever more free and spontaneous. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that idea of space And witnessing.
1: Hmm.
0: Because again, that's what probably every practice ultimately intends to do. Can you speak to the significance of finding that space a little bit more deeply and being able to become a witness to your own life versus being caught? Because again, that's our natural tendency is to. Be in the reactivity and the responses and the fight or flight and whatever dramas and narratives are constantly playing out versus being able to just take a minute and realize the space and finding that well of equanimity. It's a very powerful and beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit more to that? When, Especially when people are first starting to find it so they yeah. can relate to what we're talking about.
1: Well, um, it's the whole magic of mindfulness. You know, it's this... Um, you don't even realize all the trances you're in at the beginning. <laughs> How could you? Mm-hmm. You never had another a perspective outside it, although you've had breaks from it. And that's when you were feeling good or you had the ease. or uh, So you start to practice and you just, you know, eventually, inevitably, right away, you're caught up in something. And it's it's that first moment of noticing, oh, I'm caught up in this thing. And so you just start by, oh, I'm I'm actually... The, the 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 obvious way it shows up is you you have an intention to sit and you want to just sit and say, "Follow your breath. But it's sort of like the way I describe it is it's like you were there with the breath, but then it was like this whale, underwater whale sort of rose up <laughs> and swallowed you up. And you were swimming along the water. and you and you don't even realize that the whale has swallowed you and you floated off. you're in this bubble <laughs> of your own thinking. You're in this whole other environment. And it's this immersive, uh, kind of larval state of being in your thinking. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, and then you realize, oh my God, uh, I, I thought I was supposed to be here to meditate but I'm completely somewhere else. And you notice that. That's the action. Mm-hmm. It's no more exotic than that. It's our. You're, you have this capacity at any moment to pop back into a broader perspective. And not just in a seated practice. I mean, a good journaling practice will teach you the same thing. A good discussion with a skilled therapist, you know, will teach you the same thing. There are many ways to generate insight. It's this it's the human capacity to realize that we've been move, motoring along in a particular assumption or a particular mood and 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 to pan out and notice that. and um, and I guess what is so interesting for me is that, the space just keeps on going. It's not there's always another thing to see. And not to like set up a a a kind of thing in your mind or oh I always gotta do more because part of realizing is that you don't need to do more. You can come to a complete sense of space in the moment that's total. There's nothing more to happen in that moment. You're you're there. But over the course of your life, the course of living new layers will accrete. So there, there is a place for the examined life of being continually curious about what unconscious things you're inside without realizing it.
0: I'd like to hear a little bit more about your story. You mentioned your bipolar diagnosis, mm-hmm. your ADHD. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you st- when you were a, a younger lad, I know there there were some sordid or more hedonistic. Mm-hmm. Parts of your life, right, that maybe felt (laughs) like they precluded you from being as centered as you wanted to feel. (laughs) I'd rather hear you say it. What is it that first launched your, uh, even just your awareness or kick in the butt that, hmm, maybe I need a little something here, a little help, something to balance me out?
1: Oh, God. My whole life was a giant blinking marquee to that effect. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I was always interested in spiritual practice without knowing that's what I was doing you know like laying on my bed when I was a kid and Mm. trying to visualize infinity or having lucid (laughs) dreams or trying to teleport a ham sandwich up from the kitchen and so I mean that was there but then I I kind of had a challenging youth Uh, I was just uh, I was a unhappy kid you know I had a lot of suffering for some reason it wasn't because my parents treated me badly it just like came in the world that way Um, so I kind of went into a tranquilize myself mode from about 17 to, you know, 32, maybe uh, not exclusively, but I got where I just was really a big partier. And I did a lot of damage to myself. I, I, um, both from all the addictive behaviors, but just the reckless, insane things I did and breaking, I broke my neck and I broke my shoulders and I've smashed. I mean, I got beat up by hell, hell's angels. And I got, you know, I flipped in the back of, in the bed of, Of uh, um, uh, pickup trucks and I mean I have have had like eight near death experiences or something. Most of it altered. Um, Mm -hmm. So I so I started to get obviously you know you have your you're going. I'm still partying and doing all this stuff, but then I started to get interested in what was going on in my mind. After I broke my neck, my consciousness was quite different. It was it became I became a lot more ADD more attentionally volatile i was i couldn't organize my thoughts the same way i i was at mcgill i was a literature major and i just my schoolwork got harder and so I, I i got interested in what was going on in my consciousness and i started reading books about consciousness and the brain of course anyone who starts to get really obsessed with consciousness what you don't i mean it's almost always just like the secular way of saying you're a seeker you don't know it i had no language of spirituality right. but i was interested in my being in these philosophical questions and so I started, I think I did yoga as a way to get into my injuries, and that kind of opened me up to doing meditation. I started doing that, and then um, it all just kind of went from there. Writing the Head Trip, a book about consciousness, and I had a chapter on meditation, so I, I was doing a lot of reading about practice then. I'd been doing a lot of non-dual practices before that, and and I started sitting, and, of course, that's when... Um, Everything I started to really see the medicine of what meditation can do. But all the while, I'm still struggling with my... See, this is the thing. You know, I often felt like meditation was meant for some kind of super regulated person. Like, I'd be sitting there like, this is obviously not meant for someone who's ADHD, because I can't sit still, because I can't... I'm having trouble focusing on one thing. Once I got really interested in it, I could hyper-focus, and then I could get really deep into practice. It's kind of part of the temperament. But right away from the beginning, I was like, well, how do I make these practices work for me with this different kind of nervous system? And in the background, there was this mood volatility, which I didn't know, I didn't really make anything of. I just, what do you, you just think that's what normal is. But that was another thing that I'd be, I would go into these practices and I would go really deep and suddenly all this crazy energy, kind of Kundalini stuff would come up and I'd get really dysregulated. I'd go into these hypomanic states for days. And all I ever got from my teachers was, Oh, just notice that's happening and keep meditating, or you know, it was just like more equanimity, uh, which was not what I needed. I needed trauma <laughs> work, you know. I needed other tools for regulating myself, and so I had to figure all this stuff out on my own. And that's um, that's why I teach what I teach. You know, I teach a, a path of having to kind of kind of figure it out on your own and looking and being interested in other modalities and and getting help from community. And then there's this other paradox here because the practices. There's two things. You're accepting who you are and how you are, your weird nervous system. you got to accept that you are. You have those energies in you. You have this, this kind of volatile attention. And in the accepting, in applying the different practices, you can begin to work with those energies. You can begin to be more regulated. You can begin, even if you're ADHD, even if you're bipolar, you know, you, and of course there are other, there are meds as options or other things. Those didn't work for me. But there are so there's both a sense in which you can begin to address some of those things, and you're you're owning that you are those things. You're honoring them. You have the neurodiversity piece of knowing that those are gifts, and that's part of the movement that's happening now around mental health. It's like yeah, that's damn right. I'm I have I have this. <laughs> Not I am that mm. because you're nothing. <laughs> you start to realize that with practice. But I have, I have th- this is a visitor for me, and this is a beautiful visitor. You know, it's teaching me all these things, and it has these particular challenges. Yes, and and the but the more you totally kind of blindly self-identify with always being that way, the more it that will that story will determine you. So there is a way in which you also have to learn that you're bigger than any of these, any of those, you know, diagnoses, if you want to put it that way. So I think that was a pretty ADHD answer to your uh, <laughs> to your question. But I you think that was a bit.
0: comprehensive answer.
1: Okay. Um, I, I, like I
0: said earlier, you, um, you really are masterful at grounding the nuts and bolts of meditation and practice in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it really helps with, in a relatability kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's a reason that so many people resonate with you well, well, because you've taken away the... Well, I just sit up there the and act woo. like a weirdo. People feel, like,
1: <laughs> people feel better about themselves when they, act they see someone acting so crazy.
0: <laughs> well, there's relatability. And when you're a mm. teacher and you're relatability, um, which takes us to the next question. And when it comes to broadening the, yeah. um, you know, broadening the um, availability and democratizing yeah. the idea of practice and, and mental health, I know that this is really important to you. Can you tell me why?
1: Um, because we all need to not be alone, you know, we all, we're all we all in this together and community is a main thing of how I got through it and I want, want that for other people, whatever it means for them. Um, you know, I want, you know, to me, when I think about democratizing mental health, what I mean is making practice more accessible mm-hmm. to every kind of person and making support structures because it's not just about practice, it's about those support structures um, so that's why I founded the Conscious Explorers Club. I mean, the heart of what we do there, as a nonprofit, is it's not just that we have a global community now and we do our te- free teachings on Monday nights and uh, we do all our offerings. We also, it's what it what it has the potential to be even more is a hub for community practice. So the, I wrote something called the Community Practice Activation Kit. That's really about encouraging people wherever they are to start their own little practice groups. That, are, that reflect what the values and what's important in that local community. It won't look anything like what the Conscious Explorers Club looks like. You know, that's the point. Get together with a group of friends, do a practice, guide each other, talk about what the experience was like. Sharing about your mental health challenges, talking about your experience is itself a transformative and healing practice. You know, just that, coming together, the common cause, the, the realizing that you're not in this alone. Everyone here, we're all up against the same thing you know we have such a diverse community we have psychotherapists and you know healers and body workers and neurologists and neurobiologists <laughs> and meditation teachers and yoga teachers and movement teachers and so we're a kind of um the idea is that we're almost like a repository of you know of of, of other ways to get support right um and that that's what i imagine with these communities that you, you come together but you also understand when there may be needs for something else. We when someone needs more support, and here are the connect, connections that can make that happen. And so, that's sort of the idea. <laughs> the ideas.
0: Community can never be. The need for community can never be overstated. No. Yeah. People are so hungry for it. It's again. It's like our. It's our basic inherent desire, and yet it's still something that we need to practice and, and work on Definitely. to create
1: and it's, it's it's healing also because you know i always say the community is the teacher i i'll prepare a whole thing for a weekend thing i'm doing or a teaching and i almost always it just gets tossed out the window because the second i ask somebody to talk about their experience all of a sudden the teaching's happening over there mm. they're just being real about something they're struggling with and all these other people can relate and if that person had never said that they never would have noticed it that's another way we get insight about ourselves is to hear other people talk about it. And uh, so that's the community is the teacher for real. That's not a platitude. It's It really is. That's where it comes from.
0: I was struck by this as I was um, going through your um, activation kit and the mm-hmm. little animation um very oh, yeah. sweet little animation that you that you created with the story of the um or of the organization, and I was thinking that's such an important like I related to it so much. It's such mm-hmm. an important piece. No one is too inexperienced that's to be key. a teacher.
1: You know, I think the world needs more amateur teachers. You know, <laughs> quote, and I put teachers in quote because I don't know what another word is. is another way of saying it? it's just human beings willing to be real and vulnerable with each other and to guide each other in a practice. And um, to me, the danger of uh, the potential danger of amateurs guiding each other, which we can say something about if there is a, you know, it's possible someone can get dysregulated and there's trauma-informed pieces that I I put into my guidance and my teachings for sure. But that danger is so much smaller than the danger of not having a practice at all. The danger of being left alone in your mental health struggle with nothing to to hold on to. I mean, I feel for those because I was that person for a long time. So for me, it's about taking the teacher off the pedestal down into the community and in this place where we're guiding each other. And the, the thing is, when you are real and honest about where you're at, you are You're transmitting the the deepest teaching you can transmit. There is no teaching that is deeper than that, than being exactly honest and present with who you are and articulating and guiding from that place. That is a teacher. Beautiful. So finally, I have three
0: questions, Mm -hmm. three more rapid fire questions I like to ask every guest on Dropping In. So the first one is I'd like to grant you one wish for our listeners. What would it be?
1: Mm -hmm. If I could get my listeners anything, I would say to find the creative practice that just sings in the nervous system, to know what that is, what that song is, I would want that for everyone. And there may be many.
0: What is something you wish for yourself?
1: Same thing. (laughs) Uh, I wish... I could know but I can't that my son will never become estranged from me my two-year-old which is the weirdest thing to worry about but I'm a human being and I'm a parent I just I love him so much and I just see that estrangement and alienation that happens in all families and I I worry about it even though I know all I can do is just be present and loving and but I and there'll never be a guarantee if I could have anything, I would want that. <laughs> well, I would well, I guess I would want to know that I don't need to worry about that. Uh and somehow have come into an understanding about that. So that's a vulnerable piece, but that's true. I appreciate
0: your candor. It's powerful. Hmm. What's the most important offering or tip you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today?
1: Um They're the teacher.
0: The silence is so powerful after that. I have to end with, with the silence because that really is so loud and there's so much poignancy in that. So thank you for that. So... Number one, thank you for joining today my pleasure, and for spending the time and for your insights and the powerful and beautiful work that you do. If our listeners would like to learn more about you, buy your books, hear your meditations, where can they find you?
1: Um, well, the Consciousness Explorers Club, the, my nonprofit that uh, is really – there's a group of us, Aaron Oak and James Muscalik and Abby Kramer and Kevin Lacroix and all my friends – their website is, that website is CEC Meditate. Uh, so you can get the community activation kit there. There's lots of free resources. And then my website is jeffwarren.org and lots of free meditations there. and. You know, all kinds of stuff. So there's – I mean, I put up – I have this section called Steal These Meditation Ideas. And it's just <laughs> hundreds of meditations in there that I've guided that are that people can listen to if they're interested. And then I have also um, – on Sunday night, I do the Do Nothing Project. So it's a free broadcast to whoever wants to join in. It's live, 8 o'clock. I just appear wherever I am. I'll do one here at Omega. Usually there's some tech problem, and it's a kind of disaster, but that's – it's real. And then I guide a practice, and people chat, and it's just a wonderful – resource and community you know it's the way in which i've kept saying through the pandemic so that would be a place to if people wanted to connect they could go there yeah
0: thank you so much (laughs) you're welcome kelly thanks for dropping in with omega institute if you like what you hear tell your friends and leave us a review on apple podcasts it helps new ears find us Dropping In is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. To learn more, visit eomega.org membership. And check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in.